my very best to get this job that I so crave. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another exciting episode of Fan Zone Debate. We're here for uh, round number two. Uh, what is the, uh, I think, the final match of round number two? Yes, I'm looking at the schedule. It is the final match of round number two. Um, and we got the number one seed, Bill Cariola, going up against the number nine seed, Caleb Coho. So this is going to be an exciting one. Coho has challenged for belts here. He always shows up and does an incredible job. Bill, a rookie last season, making the way all the way to the top uh, to face Kirk. Losing in the title match, unfortunately, but getting him the number one seed and crushing it in the tournament so far in his first match. So I'm looking forward to this one. Uh, we got two of our regular judges here because I now consider Mark a regular judge. But first, we'll start with Brian. Brian, how are you doing, my friend? And what do you think of the matchup? Uh, I'm doing good. You clearly did not get the memo that on Sundays we wear blue t-shirts. Um, we're here now. Fuck. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, though, this is this is going to be a fun one. This the, I expect two things from this match, and that's volume and chaos. Um, these are two guys who get loud, and these are two guys who are kind of unpredictable in where they're going to go with their arguments. Um, but everything is always done in a, in a friendly manner. None of it's none of it's hostile, but it is going to be loud and crazy. Uh, Mark, what do you think? Uh, you know, I got to tell you, I was... Uh... Not originally supposed to be here. I was a little disappointed I was not going to be here. And then uh, just happened to ask me. didn't tell me which match. And I and I was very delighted that it was uh, this one. I, I cannot wait to get started here. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, we'll start by talking to the lower seed, Caleb. Caleb, uh, tell me if this sounds correct. Um, you're going to say something like this in the post-match, win or lose. You're going to be like, you know, um, Bill's a great guy. And... Uh, I, I didn't do a ton of prep to get here today, but um, you know, it was it was it was still a fun it was still a fun match, and uh, I screamed my head off, uh, even though I uh, you know I, I didn't think I was going to, but I did anyway. And ah, does that sound about right, Caleb? Uh, thank you. We can skip my post match interview now. Uh, we can just not do that part. Uh, it's covered. Uh, no, I I don't know. I'm excited to be in this round. Um, I'm 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 planning on trying to make it to the next one. Uh, I want I want to win the whole thing. I said that last week. I got very enthusiastic off the win. I got very enthusiastic. I was like, I'm going to fucking get it all. And now I was like, then you're like, oh, Bill. I'm like, oh, shit. Uh, so we'll, we'll see. Bill's very good. Um, I'm going to do my best. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, as we bring in the aforementioned Bill. Bill, welcome uh, to round number two uh the number one seed you've had some time off your first match was right at the beginning of the tournament and now you're all the way at the end of round number two so uh, if all tournaments like that could go for me for the rest of my life that'd be super great <laughs> so i mean it made it real easy yeah the time the time this airs this airs uh june 12th uh so in just a few weeks here uh from when we're shooting this and uh your last match aired March 2nd, so it hasn't mm. been a hot second since we've seen you, but you're playing Caleb, and I'm looking forward to this. Mark's looking forward to it, clearly. Brian as well, and even Caleb himself. How are you feeling? I mean, the only people not looking forward to it are his fiance Knowles and my neighbors. I've gotten many letters, so, I mean, that should be fine. Uh, I mean, he picked musicals, so I kind of want to make him eat a little big bit of a shit burger, but other than that, um, it should be, this should be a good time. I think we're going to be a lot of yelling, but it's going to be a uh, Real heated and uh, quite lit, as the kids say, is 10 years ago. <laughs> so, <laughs> that, 
Totally off subject, but that reminds me today my dad was wearing a baseball hat backwards and it reminded me of the Steve Buscemi, like, what is going on, my fellow kids or whatever like thing. Uh, and that reminded me of that as well. Anyway, um, we're here. Let's get into it. This is how it's going to work. So uh, Bill and Caleb drafted some categories from the worlds of fandom and melee, and uh, they gave us those categories. Then we gave them some questions. And in this instance, Brian gave them most of the questions uh, <laughs> specifically. And uh, they gave us answers based on those questions, and they are going to debate them tonight before our very souls. Uh, they're going to get one minute to open their arguments, followed by a five-minute freeform, followed by one minute closing. At the end of the debate, Brian, Mark, and I will write on our boards who we thought won that question. Two out of three uh, votes wins you a point, and the first person to three points wins the match. So, Bill, Caleb, any questions as we get into the debate? I do no, not have no, any questions, sir. No, no, I think I'm good. All right, let's get into this. All right, we are going to kick this off with the first category, uh, which was drafted by Bill in the categories of uh, act in the category of actors and actresses. Um, the question is, what is the most underrated pre two thousands John Cusack film? Uh, so, Bill, since you drafted this, you get to go first. You have one minute to open your argument when you start talking, and I will come in to give you a uh, ten second warning when the time comes. So, one minute. <coughs> When you start talking. So John Cusack's had a pretty wild career. Uh, he's been in a lot of great movies, a lot of memorable movies. We all know One Crazy Summer. We all know Better Off Dead. We all know Say Anything. Um, all, you know, critical darlings, I'm sure. And if there's one I could think of before the year 2000, when I look over that filmography and I always land on it, it's a personal favorite film of mine. And I feel like... It is criminally underrated, and it is The Grifters, which is him, Angelica Houston, and Annette Benning, and they are all just uh, criminals, small-time crooks. Everybody's just dishonest with everybody. It's directed by Stephen Frears, and this movie is goddamn amazing. Everybody is on their A-game, especially Cusack. He does this great job of playing like, like a charming but also kind of a shitty kind of criminal and Angelica Houston's his mom, who's a dirtbag, and this movie just kind of went out of the conversation almost immediately after it came out. Time. Okay. Uh, let's bring in Caleb. Caleb, you now have one minute to open your argument when you start talking. Uh, when I think of underrated, I think about critical success, financial success, and just overall what people talk about. And I think by far the answer to the most underrated John Cusack film is Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. Um, that film... Uh, features a really great performance out of Cusack, a really great performance out of Kevin Spacey. Uh, and it is a uh, a really entertaining crime drama, just a great legal thriller. And in the 90s, there's lots of those. So I can see how it might've gotten swept up, but it shouldn't have. And it is criminally underrated. It made less than its budget at the box office, no Oscar nominations. No one really talks about it now. And I think that's really unfortunate because I think that within it, you find some of Cusack's best work. You find some of Spacey's best work. And overall, you find a really solid script from John Lee Hancock, who's gone on to make many great movies. 
Uh, and I think on the whole, there's a lot of people who, work, who worked on this, who put in a lot of great work, and no one talks about it, which I think is really confusing. Uh, no critical love, no financial love, and forgotten the time, and that's unfortunate. Time. Okay. Uh, Five-minute freeform for you guys. Uh, when one of you starts talking, I will throw up the one-minute warning when the time comes. And if anybody's talking too much, um, I will throw up the let's move on. So uh, five-minute freeform when one of you starts talking. So I want to just start by saying yours did not leave the conversation. It was nominated for four Academy Awards and is widely regarded as the film that launched Jeanette Benning's film career. Uh, she was nominated off this, Angelica Houston was, Frears was, and the screenplay was. So like The Grifters is also like one of the top two movies in Frears' filmography when we think about like movies. It's not really been forgotten. It was loved at the time and it is still loved and still talked about. I had conversations about it literally three weeks ago before this debate was even set up. So like... On the whole, The Grifters is not really forgotten. I mean, I, I'm sure it's great. I know I'm glad you love it, but I don't think that it matches the description of underrated, whereas like mine, I think in every facet, if you want a financial, Oscars, critical, everything, it's like not high on either's IMDb and it's not talked about, but there's a lot of good nuggets in it. I, I, I think because your movie is perfectly rated because it is not very good. It is very mediocre. Um, major problems with this one is... Clint Eastwood is the wrong director for it. He's done some good work. This was not it. And a big problem with that one is the performance from Kevin Spacey because uh, it is also noted, it is on record, that he listened to actual court transcripts to get the feel for the character. And unfortunately, he listened to the second trial, not the first one, which is depicted in his film. And in the second trial, the guy he's portraying was on Prozac and lithium. So that's why his entire performance is barely above a whisper. And it just like, you could tell he's kind of phoning it in and it's kind of a shame. The reason why I'm picking mine is underrated is because when we talk about roles for John Cusack and his body of work, this is never brought up when we talk about him. We always talk about some of the crazier stuff. We talk about say anything. We even talk about gross point blank. We talk about Con Air and we don't talk about this. And he is really killing it in this movie. And I, I don't know why it's largely forgotten as part of his, part of his filmography because he's kind of the point of the movie. Like it's like he's driving a lot of the story, and that is See, my major gripe with this. <laughs> See, I don't think that's an issue with the movie being forgotten. I think that's an issue that Cusack has just a very, very large filmography with a lot of very, very big movies. So it's like saying Harrison Ford's forgotten because you know the Fugitive's not number eighteen on his list or whatever. Like, well, it's not forgotten; it's underrated. It's an underrated part of his filmography. Sure, but I don't think it's underrated though. I think everyone, when they talk about it, it's very successful. People love it. It's like a seventy-eight on Metacritic. Like everyone loves this movie. Everyone that I've ever heard talk about this movie says it's great, and I've been recommended this movie since I got in the community. So, like, I don't think it's underrated. I just think that it's maybe not the number one or two on his filmography for you. I think it's perfectly rated the top and like i don't i don't agree when you turn it around and be like oh because your movie's not good i don't like my movie is quite good there's a lot to like it's i maybe spacey listened to court transcripts it was the wrong one but all i know is i like what he's doing i think whatever spacey's doing is entertaining it's different from the rest of his performances and it's entertaining and good within eastwood's movie eastwood makes a lot of bland and boring movies but i would not quantify midnight in the garden of good and evil as one of them because he's doing a lot of interesting things as a director that he's won oscars for doing he does another one of those it's more aligned with unforgiven a million dollar baby than it is trouble with the curve yeah i mean it's just this is not his strong suit this is not his wheelhouse and it clearly shows through the whole film and also i really hate it but he had to go the nepo route and put his daughter in it and she drags 
every scene she is down in. This woman should not have been put near a film. And I think a stronger director would have realized what to put there. But he was like, ah, well, I'm going to give my kid a break and I'm going to give her a large chunk of this film. And also, like, I always forget Cusack's even in this film because this is not a good film. I'm sorry. I really, I know you're going to keep saying it. It's underrated. I think it's actually overrated because it's it's actually worse than I remember going back to it. There's a reason why this thing got dumped on. Whereas even though mine was a critical darling, it it didn't make nearly as much money as yours because it only played so many theaters. And while it might've gotten like Oscar noms, like I didn't see it in a lot of the year end lists. And like, you may have heard like certain cinephiles like talk about it, but as far as like normal people, like they're not going to go and seek this one out there. And it's a, it's a crying shame because they're going to go to like his more known work. And I honestly think that this is a better representation of what he can do as an actor. For an indie film, this, for an indie film, this movie made triple its budget. Like it's it made money. It made fourteen million dollars. It cost maybe like a million. So like it's a like it made money at the box office. It wasn't a wide release, but it made money. It got Oscar nominations. It is beloved. Like everyone who I hear talk about it, it started in Nat Benning's career at Angelica Houston. This is like I, one of her I, top I mean, ones. And I mean. Cusack again, and again, I think the issue is not that Cusack is like not memorable in it. It's he's great in it. The issue is that he's made a lot of movies. It's not that it's forgotten or underrated. It's just he's made more popular movies than this. But one. the and argument is mind, underrated, and in an underrated yes. film, this is definitely his most underrated. Right. Okay, we're going to start with Caleb. Caleb, you get to close first. You have one minute when you start talking. When it comes to rating, it's been properly rated from the beginning. It's considered a great movie from the time it came out to now. People today still talk about it. Oscar nominations and money in every way you want to quantify underrated. His movie just does not meet the match. While John Cusack's made a bunch of movies, that doesn't mean it's underrated in his filmography. It just means that he's made a lot of movies. The Grifter is very well liked. The Grifters is very well liked. Mine, he wants to knock it as a bad movie, but at the end of the day, it is a solid film, and that's what the argument is about good or bad. It's about underrated. And at the end of the day, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil is not seen as a movie that existed but when it comes to spacey has some great work from him eastwood has made this movie to be a lot better than the source material would give it credit for cusack is giving one of the best performances i've seen out of him in it and through and through he can try and find knocks on it making it a bad movie but the movie on itself is got a lot of merit and it was forgotten immediately this movie did not make any money it made less than its budget it had no oscar nominations it was basically dead on arrival i think that's a shame because when it comes to the pantheon of 90s crime dramas it's one of the best ones i've seen and some of the best work from a lot of talented people that's been forgotten time okay well we're going to move over to you for your one minute closing when you start talking The reason why I keep dunking on the Midnight of Garden of Good and Evil, because I and I will say this again, that movie is perfectly rated because it is just not very good. Eastwood is not suited for a courtroom drama, which is what this is. And also, I just feel like uh, John Cusack is like not even that important to the film as a whole. It's more spacey and all the other side characters, whereas in my movie, he is the centerpiece. And Caleb's movie actually made 20 million more, like 10 or 15 million more than mine did. So if he wants to harp about what made money or whatever, and while mine not, it may have had a big budget. And I think largely why it's underrated is because no one thinks of this for like Cusack. When you talk about Cusack movies, like, hey, what's a good Cusack movie? As far as like, now cinephiles will know what it is, but like common people won't. They'll talk about Con Air and they'll talk about Say Anything and they'll talk about like Better Off Dead. And I, I think like this as a whole is one of the best performances he's ever given. And I think it really needs to be appreciated as such. Plus, Annette Benning, her big break came in the great outdoors, not this. I'm just saying. So 
Thank you for my time. Time. Okay. Uh, we will bring in the judges. That debate Ooh. was lit. Look, <laughs> it's it's my dad, Brian Michaels. <laughs> I would spin my hat around, but it's red. I will click Fred Durst, and I don't want that on the internet. <laughs> uh, this was great to start, guys. Good shit. I'm just glad that you like the characters, to be clear. This movie is fucking amazing. So, yeah. It's one of my dad's favorites. Too. All right, you guys ready? Yep. Yeah, sure. Uh, <laughs> I never know where Mark is going. Yeah, sure. Whether he thinks it's, like, super close or not. Um, I went with Bill. And I think this one was close. Uh, Caleb had me for a while. Um, but I think Bill's closing kind of won me over. Um, Bill did something really smart. Caleb was kind of doing the thing of like really pounding the question because Bill kept bringing up John Cusack and Caleb was like, it's not about John Cusack. It's about the movie because it's just the movie that he's in. And Bill immediately like transitioned to what Caleb was like throwing at him. And I thought he handled it really, really well. And again, I thought his closing was great. He perfectly summed up all of the strong points of his argument and knocked down pretty much every argument against Caleb's uh, that Caleb had. But again, I do think it was close. I think Caleb did a really good job. He had me on it back and forth. It was This was really good to kick it off. So I'm looking forward to everything else. Uh, Brian, uh, where are you going? Uh, I went Coho. Um, I, I agree. It was very close. And, and honestly, I love the grifters and I fucking hate Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. I think it's a horrible movie. Never heard but, about it. Uh, but based on the debate, I thought Coho made some good points. I thought it was a, very close. I think they both, like you said, did a great job of shooting down each other's stuff. Um, but for me, it just came down to the fact that, you know, even in his opening, he's talking about how, you know, the grifters had four Oscar nominations. Then later on, he talked about how it made like, you know, 14 times its budget or whatever it was. Um, so I, I think that he kind of showed that, you know, this one has gotten plenty of attention and acclaim and uh, give it to Coho. All right. So that means that, uh, Mark, you are deciding this one. Where are you going and why? Sweet. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm going to give it to Bill. Uh, I much uh, like you, you brought up, Tim. Uh, I feel like Bill won this one in the closing. It, it was It was really close. I, I feel like Coho uh, did a really good job of attacking the question throughout and kind of bringing up how everybody really loves this movie. Like, it, it, it got Oscar noms, but I feel like Bill kind of shut down every part of the, every part of Coho's argument in that closing in the, in the sense of, like, well, his his movie made more money than me, so it kind of shut down, like, the like uh, the box office thing. And still, at the end of the day, like, I'm, I'm not going to bring this up too much. Like, I still don't really know any of these movies. I feel like both of them are forgotten by time, except for guys like us who just love movies. But no, like I, I'm going to go with Bill on this one. All right, so Bill wins point number one. We're going to move on to the next question, which was drafted by Coho in the category of DreamWorks. The question is, what is the best voice cast in a 2000s DreamWorks film? Caleb, you get to kick this one off. You have one minute when you start talking. So 
I think DreamWorks has done a really good job over the years of getting a lot of big names, but not necessarily doing a good job of utilizing them. And I think the movie that I think surprisingly utilizes a bunch of really famous people the best is Monsters vs. Aliens. Um, I think this cast is able to play to the strengths of a lot of A-listers. I think Reese Witherspoon gets to be fun. I think Seth Rogen gets to be funny and use that laugh in a way that actually helps the character. I think Hugh Laurie gets to be really smart, but also kind of like sassy. Will Arnett gets to be cocky. Rain Wilson is unrecognizable in his bad guy part. He gets to be this really intellectual alien but doesn't quite estimate his people very well um you also just get people like amy poehler who then is the voice of the computer and Kiefer sutherland who is unrecognizable as the general and i think the standout crazy enough is stephen colbert as the president he's so funny it's very topical casting at the time that could have totally backfired and at the end of the day colbert ends up stealing the show and being super entertaining so i think there's a lot of risky casting decisions that they make paul rudd is unlikable and that's the part he needs to be i think they nail it on all fronts with casting in monsters aliens time okay uh, we're going to move over to Bill. Bill, you have one minute to open your argument when you start talking. When I was looking at all the films that it kind of came out, and I landed on the one that I landed on, and I looked at this cast, and I was just... It it really blows me away, and I'm going with Kung Fu Panda for this one, because it is one of the most well-rounded casts for a film. I mean, you have a lot of comedy actors. You have a lot of Oscar character actors, a lot of, like giants in the field but you also have a lot of like really funny like comedians doing the things that they do and then you also have a lot of great homages to a lot of the culture that this movie is is basically telling from where you have uh, performances like jack black who is reined in a little bit where he's funny but he's not overdoing it and then dustin hoffman as the sensei who is like the elder person and plays his part perfectly. And then, you know, for my own personal well-being, just, you know, just a little bit about me, you have James Hong as Poe's adopted dad, and he is just so adorable and fantastic, and I love every minute of every performance in this film. Two excellent choices, gentlemen. Uh, Five-minute free form when one of you starts talking. I will give you this much uh, for your so film. My, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, yours is like a, a murderer's row of comedy, and it is fantastic. It really is. It's a it's a real good comedy cast. The only thing is, I think outside of like, well, you got Reese Witherspoon, maybe Kiefer Sutherland, uh, it, it, it it's just too much into comedy and not enough of a balance of performance kind of like voices. Whereas like this one, I mean, I have the comedy people, but then I also have like, Dustin Hoffman, I also have Ian McShane, who is doing an amazing performance, where at the same time, I'm also fucking Jackie Chan, fucking James Hung, fucking Randall Duck Kim, and it's just so, like a wonderful homage to like what's uh, and like Chinese and like Kung Fu cinema, and I think it's just like a wonderful balance. Nothing screams Chinese Kung Fu cinema like putting Jack Black at the center of your film. Um, I think when it comes to but the it does cast when you put Jackie Chan in that shit. <laughs> Okay, well, it would matter if Jackie Chan said more than four lines in the entire movie, which is my big point, is that when it comes to that movie, a lot of those big names you have are so underutilized. Seth Rogen's in your movie and done way worse. He doesn't get nearly as much entertaining stuff to do as he does in mine. He barely gets three or four lines as Mantis. And when he comes down to it, you also have Lucy Liu, who does nothing. At the end of the day, you have Angelina Jolie, David Cross, Jack Black. And those are the only three big-name actors who really get to do anything is Dustin Hoffman's doing the Dustin Hoffman 2000s thing where he phones every performance in. And Randall Duck Kim is good, and Ian McShane is, like, fine. But at the end of the day, no one's doing it. It's the Jack Black show, and everyone else is a supporting player. Whereas in mine, not no one person is overshadowed. 
overshadowing the other. The cast is working in unison like a giant great team of A-listers who know their role. They come in and they just hit a home run. My roster goes even deeper. I have John Krasinski and Renee Zellweger in one scene where the two of them play the typical 50s sci-fi B-movie we're making out in a car and the aliens come through and they flip that stereotype and play with it. Every single trope in my movie and every character who's in it takes an archetype or a stereotypical thing in 50s sci-fi and horror movies and they parody it and they make fun of it and they flip it. Colbert gets to be Dr. Strangelove. It's awesome. Yeah, I mean, it's fine. Your movie's fine, to be clear. I mean, it's it's a... A lot of them are giving it another worst like impulses, and they're really kind of overdoing it. Especially Rain Wilson, especially Will Arnett, who is funnier elsewhere. Will Arnett's funnier when he's subtle. He is not. There's nothing subtle about this, and I'm just sorry. And Stephen Colbert is basically just doing Stephen Colbert what Stephen Colbert does. Stephen Colbert is like a one thing, and that's all Stephen Colbert can kind of do. And I know you like to gripe on my movie, but Dustin Hoffman, while he doesn't do a lot, he is very subdued, and he's very authoritative at the same time that's exactly the kind of character i want to run the basically the martial arts school that is happening jack black is actually giving quite a daring performance and he's funny but he's also heartfelt and i don't even want to gripe on these guys but i'm sorry like lucy Liu is killing it she does what she needs to do she's not overstaying her welcome same thing like jackie chan when he shows up it's like it adds gravity to it like they are not overused whereas like a lot of your characters are over you like i don't Fucking Hugh Laurie is kind of drilled into the ground a little bit, and it's just me. See, here's but. my issue is that all those people that you just named could have been generic voice actor number three, and it would have done the exact same thing. It Their names don't add anything to the movie or the character of the performance because Lucy Liu and Jackie Chan don't add anything. That's the issue. Whereas with mine, those big names do add something. You can say they're over the top, but at the end of the day, over the top fits what they need to do. At the end of the day, when you go through my list, Paul Rudd is killing it as the evil ex-boyfriend. And Jeffrey Tambor is the dad at the wedding for like four minutes but he is really funny and you can say colbert's doing what colbert does but he doesn't because in that in i've watched a lot of colbert on tv he has never been funnier than he is in monsters versus aliens okay so i when mean it comes down to i watched movie, the colbert report every single <laughs> when it comes down to my cast it's a lot of big names but they're all filling all these utilitarian roles that perfectly suit what my movie needs whereas yours they don't add anything. Your big names don't add anything. At the end of the day, they could be subdued or they could be to the point where I don't even know it's them in it. And that doesn't then, therefore, they don't add anything with their performance or add any spice to it. I, I know you keep saying they don't add anything, but and that's where I'm going to disagree with you. So when you get to the idea of the Furious Five, which is a which is a nice little nod to the Five Deadly Venoms, which is a wonderful kung fu movie. You should go seek that out. And then the people that he has to fight are like, Jackie Chan, David Cross, Lucy Liu, and Seth Rogen, and Angelina Jolie, it's more impactful because it's not like just, you know, you're not just getting a Peter Cullen or Frank Welker or anything. It's just like, oh, these people are kind of important. They've been given an important job. And also, I know you're saying anything. James Hong is murdering it, and he's adorable in this. I didn't understand what Bill said at the end, but whatever he said, you should strike it from the record. That's uh, we're going to start with uh, – no, sorry. We're starting with Bill. Okay. Uh, so, Bill, you get to close first. You have one minute when you start talking. The reason why Kung Fu Panda works the way that it does is because they've gotten multiple people from multiple different backgrounds who are doing their jobs and are doing them to perfection. We have Jack Black, who is not overdoing it like he is wont to do, and Dustin Hoffman is definitely like – absolutely well suited for the leader role the furious five are all wonderfully cast from like oscar winners 
to absolute great comedians, to wonderful character actors. And also James Hung is given one of the absolute best voice performances I've ever heard. Like He is just so heartfelt and so wonderful. You can see how this guy is a loving father to Poe. And not to mention Michael Clark Duncan as just the all-imposing like hubris of the warden. And Ian McShane is doing what Ian McShane does, and he is murdering it. He is just, he has that voice that strikes fear. So when he starts talking, you know shit is about to go down. And Randall Duck Kim as the grand old master is just one of the most cuddliest old man voices. I want to make a blanket out of it. This whole movie front to back kills it. Time. Okay, uh, we're going to move over to Caleb, who has one minute when he starts talking. Your point about the Fierce Five would make sense if I knew who they were when they were in it, because they don't say any lines. If it was live action, I saw their faces, it would have more importance than actually their animated performances, because I don't know it's them until the credits roll. Because they get five or six seconds in the entire movie, and they don't add anything. Their characters get to hit Poe a lot, and Poe makes Jack Black laugh, so that's about it. And, like, you could say James Hong's cute. James Hong's being James Hong. Jack Black's being Jack Black. Every single person in the movie is doing nothing. Except Jack Black, who's being Jack Black. When it comes to the cast, you keep saying everyone does their util. It could have been Peter Cullen, and it would have been the exact same to me. They don't add any spice. Or again, the only knock you have on my movie is that people are over the top. But those over the top fit the descriptions of the roles they need. Everyone in that deep roster, down to John Krasinski's cameo, is making that movie something entertaining, something fun. It matches the parody, sci-fi, cheesy B-movie aspect they want, and everyone is absolutely firing on all cylinders. Yours is a waste. Time. Okay. That's one spicy meat of all, as they say. Mm. And by they, I mean no one. Yeah, that's fine. All right, I'm ready. Are you guys? Yep. Okay, uh, Mark, you get to kick this one off whenever you're ready. Cool. Uh, yeah. Uh, this one's honestly pretty close too. I think. Uh, I think for this one though, I'm, uh, I am gonna lean Coho. Uh, I I feel like at the end of the day, the argument that that got me was was depth and playing to the role. And I think not, not overshadowing what's going on. I feel like Coho, uh, I think, painted this picture of this really neat ensemble of people doing exactly what's asked them and not completely overdoing it, and re and really add and really adding into the full effect of the film. And I think that that's ultimately, I think, what won me over, at least with Coho. Okay, um, I'll go next. Um, I went with. The king, Caleb Coho. Um, I don't think it was that close personally. Um, I think Bill did a good job. Like, I'm not saying Bill like shit the bed or anything. I think he did a really good job with his argument, and I was buying into what he was saying. But I think Coho just did was firing on all cylinders to put down Kung Fu Panda, and Bill did really nothing for me to put down monsters versus aliens and uh coho did a great job explaining why 
every cast member, big and small, adds to that film and makes it the best. Um, so, Brian, your vote doesn't count. Where would you have gone and why? Uh, well, second question in a row, I'm actually going against the movie I prefer better because I really like Kung Fu Panda. Um, I did vote for Koho as well. Um, kind of you guys already covered it. It's just I think he did very good well, a, a very good job of talking about how his was like this ensemble of great people who really brought something to their roles uh, as opposed to um, Kung Fu Panda, where it was a lot of big names. And yes, it had the Oscar winners, things like that, but they were totally underutilized. Okay. Uh, so that means Caleb wins the point. Um, and we're going to be right back after this commercial break. The future is bright at Monsters Incorporated. We power your car, we warm your home, we light your city. I'm Monsters Incorporated. Carefully matching every child to their ideal monster <coughs> to produce superior screen, refined into clean, dependable energy. Every time you turn something on, Monsters Incorporated is there. I'm Monsters Incorporated. We know the challenge. The window of innocence is shrinking. Human kids are harder to scare. Of course, MI is prepared for the future with the top scarers, the best refineries, and research into new energy techniques. Ah! We're working for a better tomorrow. Today, we're Monsters Incorporated. Monsters Incorporated. We scare because we care. Great commercial break. We're back. Uh, so we're going to move on. It's a uh, one-to-one. Uh, so we're going to move on to the next question, uh, which was drafted by Bill in the category of sci-fi icons. The question is, which sci-fi icons film had the most wasted potential? Bill, you get to kick this one off. You have one minute when you start talking. going to paint a picture here <clears throat> you have the predator franchise which was kind of marred for years i mean predator one is a classic predator two it's fine it's enjoyable uh then we hit the alien versus predator years and the less said about those the better and then we get the robert rodriguez predators which was very underwhelming and it's just it's been a slog of mediocrity and then you find out they're going to do a new one and not only that they got Shane Black to write and direct. He is coming off of a one, two, three punch of just fucking bangers. And then he shits out one of the worst things I've ever seen in The Predator. And you want to talk about so much promise wasted. This movie is just an unmitigated disaster from just like they had a good cast. Nothing works right. The effects are terrible. The jokes don't land nothing in this film works the ending is the worst i fucking hate it i was so mad <laughs> that escalated so quickly the ending was the worst i fucking hate <laughs> oh, okay uh caleb we're gonna go over to you one minute when you start talking the terminator franchise is a franchise that is built on some of the best movies in the genre of sci-fi. The first two, and arguably three, are really great movies. And then McGee threw it off a cliff, and then they thought maybe the guy who made Thor The Dark World could save it. But what they decided to do was to get the guy who made Deadpool and get James Cameron back in to produce and go back to the first two that worked and start over. 
going just off Terminator 2 and creating a new sequel series. It worked for Halloween. It was working for everyone who had been doing the reboot quote reboot over the things that they didn't like. And Terminator Dark Fate had the opportunity to absolutely crush. Arnold and Linda Hamilton were back. They had a new up-and-comer, Mackenzie Davis, who was promising. You had a promising young director who had crushed with Deadpool on his first time out. And now you're in a position where the Terminator franchise could be new again. Cameron was back involved in a real way this time. There was a lot to be done, and that movie falls apart after the first act. All right. Um, I don't know what to say. I like both these movies. Uh, Five-minute freeform of one of you, sir. You know what's funny? I actually like Dark Fate, too. You know what's funny? I have You're one of the three people that doesn't like Dark Fate. <laughs> Everybody well, likes Dark that's Fate. That's crazy. That's crazy because apparently the box office didn't because this movie is not like this movie's not good. You can say you like it, but at the end of the day, no one has gone back to it. They did not decide to move forward with any sequels to it. No one responded to this movie. It was dead on arrival and no one liked it. At least not enough to make another one. You're like you and Tim apparently are the first two people I met who went, yeah, Dark Fate's good. But like that movie on the whole does not live up to the the promise that it set out to, because at the end of the day, that second act where they go on the hunt for Arnold is really boring. That third act, none of the action is as good as the first two movies that it's following. There's an, on, at the end of the day, I might say I like Genesis more. At least it was a swing. So at the end of the day, Dark Fate doesn't live up to any of that promise. Whereas the Predator, who thought the Predator was going to be good? First of fucking suck. all, first of fucking all, how dare you even say that Genesis was enjoyable? I have, I would literally rather pay a homeless man. $50 to punch me in the balls in an alley for the month of August that never have to do That's what you did by paying for the Predator. I'm fucking, well, yeah, because it's fucking terrible. My movie's got, my movie is literally shitting in my mouth and telling me it's a Sunday. This movie is the dog shit worst. Here's the thing, like, everybody fucking loves Dark Fate. That's the thing. Every review my friends like, this is the best one since two. Like, that's how good it is. I don't fucking care if it didn't make money. It's a, it's a fine film. It's totally fine. Also, all that movie had to do was clear the fucking dark. All Dark Fate had to do was be better than Genesis, which is like literally a curb that's negative eight inches high, and it fucking does an ollie over it on a skateboard. My film, here's the thing so, you gotta understand. Here's the thing I need you to really understand, though, is because Shane Black is coming off of Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, Iron Man 3, and the fucking nice guys. That is a fucking run. And then we were all excited, like, Shane Black's a great writer. Shane Black could clearly direct. Shane Black's going to fucking turn this thing around, and he drove it up his ass. That's because the there's nothing to write. You can't make a good Predator movie. The first one's bad, too. Hate to break it to you all. They've never made a good one. At the end of the day, Shane Black cannot save a premise that is, oh, this alien comes down and fights this shitty Boyd Holbrook? He comes down and fights Boyd Holbrook. Why would you ever think that was ever going to be good? There was no promise to this movie. The Predator had a terrible concept by bringing it back to Earth and having the third guy in Logan be the guy with the annoying shit kid from Good Boys. So I don't know what world we're living in where we're like, hey, this guy, even just because he was a featured extra in the first one, had any reason to make a good Predator movie. Again, when it comes to the one with the most promise, Dark Fate, 
doesn't live up to that promise because at the end of the day, Cameron is involved and it doesn't match the first two. It feels off in the first two tonally and plot wise. Linda Hamilton does not feel like the same character. Arnold feels like he forgot how to play the Terminator. Mackenzie Davis, who is like America's new up and comer at the time, doesn't make a good movie. And Tim Miller, who nailed action in Deadpool, I, I promise you. No one could tell you how a single action scene in Dark Fate goes because it's here's boring. The, it's too oh my god, dark that fight at the end in the oh, I'm sorry, that fight at the end is fucking baller. I'm sorry. Yeah. The highway no, fight is great. The chase not. is insane. So here's the thing. Lynn Hamilton is actually uh, honestly, she's she's crushing it. That is exactly the thing I expect where she would be in that frame. Also, Arnold, yeah. He is not the same person, and he is treating it that way because, let's face it, he's learning, he's adapting, he's growing. Like he is, like, like, like they kind of slowly hit it at in two, which is great. Like they're actually giving these characters that we care about love character development. Here's the thing you got to understand Shane Black can write the shit out of everything. Like when you get him to write something, he is killing it. When you got the long kiss, good night, he, he had his hand in the first predator, which by the way, I'm sorry, first off, the first predator is fucking great. I don't want to hear that. You were wrong, and that is fine, and you can just live in your wrongness. It's not a bad movie. It's a fucking baller-ass movie. You get to the chopper, my friend. So, no, and that is the correct... And also, not to mention, yes, these movies work. You know why? They literally brought in Prey, and it fucking works. You could do a good Predator movie. You could do it on Earth. This was not the time. They got it all wrong. And I don't know how. They had the right cast. They had the right director. It was like everything was pointing in the right direction, and then somehow everything went horribly wrong. Predator dogs live in my nightmares. I don't know who the fuck greenlit that, but you should be fired forever. And honestly, Dark Fate, I will watch that a million times over, and everybody I know has seen Dark Fate, and they're like, this is a fine movie. This is good. No one likes the Predator. All right, Caleb, you get to close first. You have one minute when you start talking. If we're arguing good movie versus bad movie, Bill can harp on his movie being worse all he wants. But when it comes to living up to potential, there's no potential for the Predator to live up to because all the movies before it are bad. None of them are good. They're all mediocre, alien fights, buff guy movies. And then Shane Black, just because he was in the first one, doesn't mean he has a good idea for another one. And the Predator doesn't have any potential to live up to. So at the end of the day, it ends up being the second best Predator movie. It's just fine. All of them are bad. And that's why, like, you can say Prey. Prey's in the past. There's no, like, fucking cars and guns in that one. That's why it's good. When it comes to Terminator Dark Fate, he can say people like it, but no one turned out to watch it. So I don't believe him. When he's like, oh, the highway chase in this, you could have been describing Deadpool. All those action scenes that you just said are not memorable. You didn't give me a single moment in that movie that matters because at the end of the day, only thing people remember is they shot John Connor in the first five minutes. James Cameron had a hand in it and Genesis feels more like a Terminator movie than this. Arnold feels more like the Terminator in the first one. It's not character development. It's not knowing how to play it. Time. Okay. Uh, we're going to move over to Bill. Bill, you have one minute when you start talking. Okay, first off, point of order, Genesis can't be a better film because it decided to erase the first two good films in that fucking franchise. I will never, ever forgive Genesis for that. And honestly, you can harp on like that it didn't make money and you can go on and all this, but you know what? Some of the best movies ever didn't do well. They found their audience later. I don't give a fuck about that. This movie did have the audience. People genuinely do care and like about like this movie. I have not met one person that didn't say, that movie's terrible. I don't know why. Everyone's like, yeah, you know what? That was actually really good. I, I, I kind of wish they would keep going now. Whereas mine, they, they had to fucking shutter the doors for like four years and go, okay, we got to throw everything out 
and wipe the slate clean and try to start over again. You had Shane Black coming in after Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which killed it. Iron Man 3 made a billion goddamn dollars, so that proves he could write and direct franchises. And then he makes The Nice Guys, which was one of the most critically adored and funniest films I've ever seen. And then we give him this franchise that he's had a hand in before. Like, this is absolutely the guy, and he blows all of that potential, and he fucking kills this movie. Time. Oh, God. Um, Brian, did you write this question? Yes. Are you happy? I am happy. Okay, good. Yeah, God damn it. So many things you like, Brian, are in fandom now. What the hell? I know. But there's still enough to keep me out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm somehow undefeated. That fucking nothing makes sense. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah. Yeah, and no matter when this airs, that remains true. Yeah, no, it totally is. Yeah, it's fantastic. I love yeah, that. I almost bonkers. just went. Is he spoiling something? No, it doesn't. I am not. Matter. I am literally not. No, we're not doing that again. It doesn't matter at all. Actually, nothing matters. Oh, man, Mark, are you ready? Oh, okay. No, uh, you can take your time, dude. Like, I, uh, no, I, I, I screwed up on something. Let me just fix it. <laughs> I realize it. Uh, you screwed up on which name right now. <laughs> yeah, I wrote down Tim's name by mistake. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Tim gets the point. All right. Tim gets the point. Okay, yeah. Finally. Finally. All right. Uh Brian, you're kicking us off on this one. Um I like both these movies, so I don't care what you guys say. Um Yeah, this is a tough one. For the first half of this argument, I felt like they were both arguing underrated again instead of Wasted potential, but in the second half of it, and then the closings, they definitely got into the into the what we were looking for in this. Um, I did vote for Bill. Um, while I think they both weren't everything they could have been, I think that Bill made a better pitch for um, you know with with Shane Black and, and the run he was coming off of and everything. How um, you know it had so much potential to do something more with it, and how Prey went you know was obviously followed up and did more successful. Um, and he also did to the attacks on Cape, uh, co-hosts, like when, uh, talking about Hamilton, uh, Hamilton wasn't wasted. Hamilton, even if the movie was successful, she was killing it in that movie. Things like that. So. Okay. Uh, Mark. Uh, yeah. Um, it's tough. It was, um, strong feelings about this, but I did end up going with, uh, Bill. Oh, uh, Cariola here. Um, yeah, I feel like at the end of the, like, I think one of the main points that got me is I think Coho uh, kept going back to is like there wasn't there was there wasn't any potential in this franchise. All of them are bad, but I feel like Bill very smartly I think stayed with Shane Black is just a good writer and director. Like he's just a good creator in general. He's coming off a lot of good stuff anyway. So the fact that he came in, did the Predator. Not much came out of it. I think kind of is what ended up sealing to me, and I don't, I, I don't, I don't really feel like Kohat had a lot to say to at least that particular point. I think that's kind of the one that I glommed onto the most, and kind of what edged out, what gave uh, Bill the edge here. Okay, uh, my vote doesn't count. Um, I thought it was super close, frankly. Um, I like both of these movies, so I was basically looking for someone to tell me just like what was why their movie was just like 
should have been better almost. Uh, and actually, I, I went with Caleb. Frankly, uh, I I do think uh, Dark Fate is the is the better. Does movie. it say Uncle? It does. It says Uncle <laughs> because uh, I I think that on paper uh, I go with I go with Bill. But um, and and what you guys said made a lot of sense to me. But I thought Coho's argument was strong for Dark Fate, and he was able to give me like uh, specific reasons and the the plot that don't work. And I thought Bill was just like Shane Black, Shane Black, Shane Black, and that didn't really do much for me. So, uh, but Bill gets the point. It's two to one in favor of Bill. Um, we're gonna move on to the next question, which was drafted by Coho. Oh, it's in Bill's favorite. It's the category of music. I'd like to uh, preemptively just congratulate you on this next point, Coho. <laughs> oh my God. All right, so <laughs> you can still be here, dude. This is gonna be rough. The category of musicals. What is the most important song in a 2020s musical? Um, okay, Caleb, <laughs> you're kicking this off. One minute when you start talking. One of the most criminally underseen musicals from 2021, which is like the best year for musicals in a long time, uh, was a movie called Everybody's Talking About Jamie, uh, which was this musical about a uh, queer kid uh, who wants to get into drag and do drag shows and become a drag queen and uh, is trying to find the courage to embrace that part of himself. And in doing so, meets an, an, an old drag queen played by Richard E. Grant, uh, who tells their story to Jamie. And this song was called This Was Me. And it essentially is the courage that Jamie needs. It's the push, the mentoring that he needs. It shows the importance of drag in, in Richard E. Grant's life and then also in what it could mean to Jamie. It shows the relationship that Richard E. Grant has with his boyfriend uh, back in the 80s, what Freddie Mercury means to them. Um, and basically their story all the way up, I think it's a super important song, not just in the movie, but outside the movie right now. It's a great anthem. Time. Okay, uh, we'll move over to Bill. Bill, you have one minute when you start talking. So, <clears throat> I have selected 3090 from Tick, Tick, Boom, which, uh, same year, 2021, um, Andrew Garfield playing Jonathan Larson. And the more I read about it, like, the more the song just actually really struck a chord with me. So, basically, the 3090 is, uh, the song takes it a time and place where Jonathan Larson is turning 30, in the year 1990 and it's all his anxieties and frustrations of where he is in his life it's sort of like the you know like the year 30 kind of life crisis of like what have i really done like like is this even worth it like i'm killing myself and for what and the idea of just the anxiety and the dread of like not fulfilling your life's dreams and the thing you've worked for and just how much that can weigh you down and like question yourself and that's a very humanizing and also very just open song that really speaks to like a shared experience that any of us can kind of relate to and i think it's a really wonderful piece time all right no one picking anything from dear evan hansen interesting uh guys five minute free form when one of you starts talking so 3090 is a great song, and I love all of Tick, Tick, Boom. But if you're going to pick the most important song from Tick, Tick, Boom, it would be the final song. It would be the one where the ideas that he presents in 3090 
come to a head and he has a lesson learned and it leads him to find that direction. And it also leads <laughs> to the direction in the life that he has with his friend AIDS and everyone else in his life. So I feel like you could have picked a lot other songs from the movie, especially the final one, which I think is a better song. Whereas 3096 is really kind of fun, but it's just, it's rehashing the monologue he gives immediately before it. It doesn't really add anything to the show. It's fun. But like with mine, I think mine transcends even its movie in terms of importance. I think that that move. I think what this is me adds to the conversation about uh, drag and cross dressing, especially now. But also just keeping it to the movie. The what it does for Jamie in the film is it is the driving force to give Jamie what he needs to get up on stage to create the persona that he wants to use. And it's an incredible, incredible song that actually breaks my heart, makes me cry every time I watch the scene. I know you're going to go on in the later one. Like you're, you're, you're talking about the better song, but I think this is the important song. It's the crux of where everything goes. Like this is the setup for his entire journey of him getting to fulfill his life's work, which sadly, you know, we, he doesn't get to live to kind of see like hit like his biggest accomplishment and like what a tragic figure this really is. And just like all the things that he had to go through. And I think are perfectly captured in 3090 where like, well, therapy is also very good for that and it, it is a phenomenal song. I think this one is far more important because it sets the stage for where everything is and where he is going to be like as as, See, uh, as we go along with it. I would, I would say I would agree, but there's a monologue where he spells it all out to the audience and then sings the song. So like there's like five minutes set up where they talk about like, this is Jonathan Larson. He didn't live to see this. They literally tell you who he is. And then he goes, I'm Jonathan Larson. I'm 30 years old. This is my anxiety <laughs> in a monologue. And then the song is just sort of a button. Whereas like, I feel like when, so it's not as important as you even make it out to be. I think there are, like you said, therapy is a far more important song when it comes to that process for him. When it comes down to the songs, I feel like there's a lot more important ones that you can talk about. Whereas when it comes to mine, you can say mine's the better song, but it's also the most important song because it's the one that makes Jamie make the decision that he makes. It's the, the first act culminates in this moment where Jamie, who has been bullied, who has been beat up, who has literally lost confidence in his dream and what he needs and what he wants and finds Richard E. Grant in the store while looking for dresses kind of secretly. And then Richard E. Grant's like, here's my story. Here's my dress. Here, I'll show you the videotape of my entire life, of us performing, of us at dance clubs, my relationships. And it's Jamie seeing how important this means to him and Richard E. Grant, and it gives him the courage he needs. It's the most important song in the entire show because there is no show without This Was Me. 3090 is a button on a monologue that if we didn't have 3090, we still have everything we need from Jonathan Larson's story going into it. Yeah, and you keep going on, and I get that your song is important for your musical, and the reason why I picked this one, because I think it transcends just this musical, and this is a wonderful footnote in the history of a life that was tragically cut short, and I think like, it, it just the impact that even though he was only here for a short time with Larson had as far as just just the New York community, like in general, just the arts and all the things that have gone on because of this. And I know you keep harping that they keep saying like, oh, there's a whole monologue that sets it up and that's fine. And I get that. But I think it's also very important that like, yeah, we have what's in place, but we also really need to hear what is going on in his head. And I think that's what makes the whole thing work. That's what makes the scene relatable is when you hear this is kind of what I'm going through. You know, like, I, like we've all been there. You will be there in a couple of years. Trust me, because I have been there. Like, you know, like when I was hitting 30, I'm like, is this really what I want to do? Is this really where I want to be? 
And that is a hard thing to kind of articulate. And Larson does it amazingly well in this to where it's something that is a universal thing we can all kind of understand. And there's a reason why this got put in the Library of Congress is because of how important just this song was and just this like incredible life this guy could have had. And God only knows what we would have gotten had he lived longer. Unfortunately, that is just not the way that it is. So I think it transcends not only this musical, but life in general. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Louder than words, I think, emphasizes your point in a much more concise and better way, but also with answers from Jonathan Larson's own personal life and history. It gives us more depth <laughs> to the idea where 3090 is sort of a surface level attempt at just reiterating what he already said in the monologue. That actually closes out the story for him. It is what you're saying, the button, the feeling of his life. That's louder than words. That's the final song. Mine is more important than outside the movie as well. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That whole last two seconds movie as well. Borden, Coho, please keep it together. Strike it from the record, Bill. You have one minute to close when you start talking. <clears throat> the whole point of the question is the most important song in a 2020s musical. And while it might be important for that musical, I think this is more important historically overall, not just for this musical, but in just the history of like Broadway and musical theater and what a tragically short life Jonathan Larson had and kind of encapsulating who he was as a human being, like very few people can actually do. And I think 3090 really does capture that. It captures his anxieties and his frustrations and just everything going on with him as a human being at that moment in time of like, am I even going to be able to do the thing I've dreamed about doing all my life? And the idea of that, like that is such a universally understood thing. Like that's something we can all kind of empathize with, like, cause we have all been there. Like we, we've all had our insecurities and frustrations. Very few of us can articulate it or even emote it the way that he was able to. There's a reason why this got sent to the library of Congress. There's a reason why this guy gets a movie made about him. It's very important, not just musical theater. Musical something. I didn't hear the last word. That's fine. Cause it was over. So. Uh, straight from the record. Uh, we bring in Coho. Coho, one minute when you start talking. The point that I was trying to make about it being more important outside the movie, even more than 3090, is that Tennessee literally banned drag in public spaces. So we're in a position right now in the world where expression is being contained. And that's why I think this was me so important, because what that does, not just for Jamie, but for other queer kids around the world who hear it, it tells them they're not alone. And that's what it does for Jamie in the movie, and that's what it does outside of it. It shows you that drag is, an, is a permissible form of expression, and it's true to you. And that's what This Was Me is all about. It's about the shunning that Richard E. Grant got. It's about the relationship that he had that he lost due to AIDS. It's about embracing himself when it was really, really, really unpopular to. And now Jamie chooses to do that with that inspiration, that blessing from Richard E. Grant. And that's why it's important in both the movie and outside the movie. 3090, again, is a good song in a good musical. But Jonathan Larson has written more songs within that same musical that Bill himself, by his own admission, has said, still cover that topic better. Therapy, louder than words. They do the same thing. That's the whole musical, 39. He's not anything special, but besides the rest of it, this was me makes that movie and that musical work. Time. Oh, good. You cut yourself off that time. Uh, okay, so we'll bring in the judges. Boy.
Oh, I get to go first too, don't I? Fuck. Okay. You guys ready? You can change the yep. order. Did you say it's my show? I can change it. <laughs> it's your show. You can change the order. You know what? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> this was tough. Um, Bill painted a really interesting picture. Um, for the record, I have not seen Coho's movie. I've seen Bill's movie, and I didn't like it. So there's that. Um, and uh, trying to take all that out of it, I thought Bill painted a really interesting picture of why that song is important um, beyond just the movie. But I went with Coho. Um, because I think that he was able to give us many clear examples from the rest of Tick, Tick, Boom that were, um, giving kind of the same idea as 3090 and maybe in a better, more important way. Um, and then still being able to paint to me why his song was more important than any of those um it, but i thought this was really tough like bill bill played it off at the beginning like <laughs> good luck getting a point but i thought he did a really really great job on it so brian uh where are you going uh well, i first like to thank both people for actually like explaining you know their movie and their scene and everything the song come from too many times people come in here and they don't fully explain it and so if you haven't seen one you don't know what they're talking about uh, in the case of Coho's, I have not seen that musical yet. Uh, as far as I knew, this was me was the follow up to "This Is Me" from Greatest Showman. Um, Literally, what I was thinking, like the whole. Um, so I appreciate that. Um, I think that Coho, early on, had a really good lead for me because he he kept harping in about how uh, Bill's pick. You know, it, it was a good song; it told the story. But that exact same thing had been told in a monologue right before that, so it's not as important to the musical because you know we already know that information. Um, but then Bill took a took a good twist on that. He took it and he ex interpreted the question differently. And he was like, you know, we're not talking just important to the musical. We're talking important, you know, overall. And I thought that was a very interesting twist. And he made a real good, real good case for that. But I felt then that in his closing, Coho answered that very well. He he grasped, grasped onto that, talked about how his was also important in that aspect as well, in terms of how it's important outside the musical, just to, you know, other kids who might be in this kind of situation. And so my vote does go to Coho. All right, uh, Mark, your vote doesn't count. Where would you have gone and why? Well, uh, oh, well, kind of raced the B of my sleep, but yeah, I did go. Caleb. Yeah, no, that's completely a yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, uh, you you guys outlined it pretty well. Like, um, go, I I feel I feel like Coho kind of uh, hit on Bill's argument, and I feel like he just kind of controlled this one for for the most part. So yeah, well, Coho there. Uh, so that means we are all tied up and we are going to a bonus round. Here is how this is going to work. Um, I randomized the category between <coughs> them and melee to decide uh, what side of uh, fan zone the question would be coming from. After that, I randomized the remaining categories that weren't used uh, to find out what the question would be. And uh, to find out what the category for the question would be, and then got the question. So uh, each player, I'm going to read the question. Sorry, I'm going to 
read the question. Uh, then I'm going to repeat the question. After I have said it the second time, the players will be able to answer the question. Whoever answers first gets to go first. Uh, you will each get 45 seconds for a uh, first speak and then 30 seconds to close. You can use your time however you want. Um, if you want to talk about dog food for 45 seconds, go for it. Um, don't think it'll help you, but you could. Um, so, any questions from the players? Nope. Okay. The question is about dog food. Ooh. What's the best use of dog food? <laughs> to feed your dog. Anyway. Um, the, okay, so the side of fan zone that was uh, drafted was the uh, melee zone. The fan, the war zone, melee zone. Yeah, melee. And the uh, category was crime. Uh, the question is, what post-2000s crime film should be seen by more people? So what post-2000s crime film should be seen by more people? Can I go to the bathroom real quick? That's okay. While we're waiting. Is that cool? We Do you have your answer? Me? I, yeah, I'm good. Yeah. Oh, then say I, I thought we were. I thought we were waiting for, I thought I'd wait for him. No, if you have your answer, say your answer. Okay, it's the lookout. Uh, I'll be choosing the old man and the gun. Okay. Uh, so the lookout, I believe it was called, Bill, mm -hmm. versus the old man and the gun. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm going to stay on screen to give you guys your countdowns for this. Um, and actually, one sec. I will make a cut right here. I just want to check one thing. Perfect. I know of both of these films, and I'm pretty sure they're both crime films. I'm just making sure on IMDb that they qualify. Yep, okay. So, three. There we go. We're ready. Okay, so uh, I'm going to stay on screen to give you guys your warnings. Ten seconds uh, for each warning. Um, we're going to kick this off with Bill because he spoke first. <laughs> Bill, you get to kick this off. You get 45 seconds when you start talking. The Lookout is a 2007 film. Uh, it, it's basically just it, it's core. It's a bank heist, but a little more to it. It is Joseph Gordon-Levitt. He was a young, like popular quarterback, like kid gets in a horrible car accident because he's like reckless, has severe brain damage and has to relearn how to live. And the rest of the movie is him living with this blind roommate played wonderfully by Jeff Daniels. And he meets these people that kind of be his friends. And then here you find out they're trying to take advantage of him because they're trying to rob the bank. And it's just watching him go through this and being taken advantage of and like just an awful situation and him trying to get away from it it's one of the best fucking crime movies i've ever seen scott frank directed the hell out of this he's written a ton of great stuff from out of sight to wolverine and this movie really needs to be seen by a lot more people than it was time okay caleb uh 45 seconds when you start talking So yours really just sounds like any other generic 2000s crime film. It just has Joseph Gordon-Levitt in it, and that's not really a selling point for me. Um, the Old Man and the Gun is the swan song of Robert Redford's career. It gives Robert Redford one last meaty role as a guy who is a nonviolent bank robber, who's a nice guy that's just trying to pay, pay uh, off a debt. 
uh, that he needs to pay off from a previous thing. That's kind of a spoiler. Uh, but it's a big swan song to his career. There's a whole montage of moments from his uh, other films that kind of hint that he could be the like, same guy uh, as an old man at the end of all of it. And I think it's a great drama where Casey Affleck is chasing him down. He kind of, it's like a Robin Hood type story, uh, but it's like about a really sweet real life old guy uh who just did this because he had cancer bills to pay off which i'll just spoil it but it's he's phenomenal david lowry directs it well yours just seems to end. time uh bill 30 seconds whenever i start talking though right yep okay Yours is so generic, it's basically wise guys all over again, which if you haven't seen, it's Kirk Douglas, and it's, it's fantastic. Um, the thing that sets mine apart is it's more of a character study about Joseph Gordon-Levitt and just, like, the absolute horror that he had to go through, and now he's getting wrapped up in a situation he doesn't want to be in because Matthew Good's character, who's fucking killing it, is taking advantage of him and is using his position to basically rob this place, smear his name, Try to pin it all on him. It is wonderful character study. It's a fantastic crime film. Okay, Caleb, 30 seconds. That'd be great if yours had more sensitivity than, say, The Last Boy Scout. It has no nuance to it. It's just a basically cut-and-dry movie. You can say my generic, but it's not. Because Robert Redford gives one last great performance of his career in what is David Lowry's epic crime film. It's a really unique take on a bank robber who walks up to someone and uses nothing but his words and leaves. And Casey Affleck has to see, did he really break a crime? No, what kind of crimes can we charge him with? And he falls in love with Sissy Spacek, and it's this great romance of the conceit of it. There's nothing generic about it. What it does is it channels Robert Redford's entire career into one distilled great final performance and that's why it's generic or beautiful beautiful <laughs> my god caleb uh okay so we'll bring in the judges thank you <laughs> breaking all your rules today <laughs> i just like pointing it out that's right All right, you guys ready? Sorry, I took so long. Yep. Mark, you get to start. Goody. Um, band it off. I ended up going with Coho. I think as a whole, uh, he painted a more interesting picture of what his movie is, and I think um, kind of shot down what Bills is, which didn't sound bad, but I think uh, I I don't think kind. I don't think Bill sold his movie as a, as a movie that should be seen by more people as well. I'm going to follow in my uh, Mark's footsteps by ripping the Band-Aid off. I'm not going to let it go on for so long. I also went with Caleb. Um, I think that I agree with Mark. I think that um, this was really tough for me. I do think that Bill sold me on why his movie was good and um and something i want to watch 
Um, but I think Caleb just painted the better picture overall of why not only was Old Man with the Gun underseen, but why the movie was like super great, why um, all of the things that it has going for it. And it, 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 this was tough. This was really close for me. I, I love Caleb, but I, I think that they both did a good job of saying why the movie should be seen. But I think that Caleb just overall, his movie, he was able to give me more examples from the movie. It, it, this was really tough. This is a 49-51 for me. This is the closest one of the match. So, uh, Brian. Uh, mine doesn't count, apparently. I vote for Bill. Um, I think that um, he did a good job of explaining why his, his movie should be seen. Not, And it wasn't just about Joseph Gordon-Levitt. I think that he talked about the rest of the cast. He also talked about the writer, who I think is a big deal. But, you know, like I said, writing everything from like out of sight to, to Logan. I thought that was a good thing to throw in there. And, uh, yeah, my vote would have gone to him. Okay. Uh, well, that means your winner is Caleb Coho in what I believe uh, might be one of the bigger upsets of this tournament. So uh, we are going to move to Bill uh, to kick it off. Bill, fantastic match. Uh, really close. All of these were really close. Um, this was insane. And I think Caleb is underrated at a nine seed. Um, and this was a really tour de force for both of you. How are you feeling post-match? I mean, maybe I'm a little rusty. It's been two, three months, so it's a bit of a lag. Uh, it, it's fine. I, I lost the one I kind of just knew. Like, when I, when I got that question, and then when I saw those songs, and then a minute 30 into his, I'm like, oh, I'm so fucked. It's actually incredible. Like, Jesus Lord, I can't argue this. Like, how, what the fuck is he even gonna? I'm like, I, I, and I was so focused on, I gotta try to win the other three because I cannot win <laughs> that decide this match at all. And that threw me off. And, uh, you know, it's also, I haven't seen The Lookout in like since 2007. And it's a, it's a movie I do genuinely love, honestly. And I don't think it's a fucking great movie that I think got like fucking a raw deal in bad marketing because they did not know what the hell they had. And it's a shame. But yeah, it, I, I, it's trying to remember things from like 2007, and I'm like, shit, it has been a minute. <laughs> it's just like, what are you gonna do? Uh, adds off to Coho though. I mean, this is fun. This is the second time I've gotten to play him in anything. We've never. I, I think we got to keep the thing going. Of we never get to play in traditional kind of trivia matches where our <laughs> last one was like the fucking Star Wars thing that's going on in Ansel, and now it's a debate. So I don't think we should ever act like uh, we got to have a rubber match at some point. Like, I got to I got to win one because I haven't because it's its own two now, but it's fine. So that's yeah. fair. Bill, uh, fantastic match. You were the number one seed for the reason. Uh, you still have a fantastic record four and two this is only your second loss outside of the title match. Um, so still fantastic record um, and a knockout on that record as well. Now, we've had a few people call you out. Okay. Um, as people that want to play you, okay. Um, is there anybody that can you, you can you tell me their names? Because I, I can't. I want to see if you if there's anybody you want to play, and then to see if that was match up at all. There's one person I have gone on record, and it's not because I I, I have some kind of ill will. It's because this is uh, my friend, and I've never got to play him one on one on anything in any capacity, and we've known each other for years. And if I could ever just get a match with Rue just one time, I think it's basically going to turn into an appreciation society. 
So I think he's told me that off call, but he, as of uh, standing in this, I believe, uh, no, he, no, it totally was him. He lost to Boatman and he called you that what I think it was Rue. So uh, at least one of them was Rue. I know of another one. I'll tell you after the match. So we'll (laughs) see if we can make that happen because honestly, looking at the, looking at the rankings, that's, that's pretty doable. It's pretty doable. Bill, Congrats on a great match. And congrats uh, to Coho. He earned it. He, he killed it today. So, hey, he's a good yeah. dude. Awesome. Bill, can't wait to see you later this year. Uh, let's get into the post-match with Caleb Coho. Caleb, you won the match. Um, you said we were going to skip your post-match. So, see ya. Have a great night. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, absolutely great. <laughs> Caleb, how are you feeling? Uh, you're the number nine seed. You just beat the number one seed, and you're moving on to the um, what I believe is the semifinals. I'm gonna double check that. Yes, the semifinals. How are you feeling? Um, it's not an understatement to say my nerves are as shot as the last time I took out a one seed with Rizzy three, four years ago. Uh, Bill is really fucking good at this, uh, and it was I. There was a lot of those where I sat there and I was like, I absolutely could have lost right now. Um, there was a couple rounds where I really did thought I think I was about to lose and I won. So I, I really thought I was going to lose musicals for a second. Um, and uh, I think Bill did a really good job. Um, time to put now that it's all over. Been at the garden. Good. It's not good. And I picked it without watching it. And I knew I was going to lose that fight the moment I saw the characters. Um, So yeah, uh, Bill did great and he's fantastic. Uh, just like you said, I'd say, uh, because it's the truth. Um, but yeah, I, I think my new approach to this of like, I don't know. It's, I don't know if like, I would say it's like restrained, whatever, but like just kind of coming into this a little bit more chill going into matches, I think is making it not like, not just more fun for me, but also I think it's throwing a lot of people off when I play them. So I'm kind of hoping that I can keep that going in the next one. But I also know it's probably a physical impossibility for me to not go, back to yelling with who I'm playing next. Yeah. Um, so I already said it. You, uh, Caleb beat Rue. You're playing Caleb Boatman. Yeah. Listen, um, we did this team's uh, fan zone thing a while back where we beat Tark. Uh, uh, I think there was – I'm having visions in my sleep of this thing – that happened where me and Boat were on a team and we fought Kirk and Cody. And I woke up from that dream and my back really hurt because it felt like I had just carried a ton of bricks uh, up a hill both ways. Uh, so I feel like I, I think Killer Boatman uh, has to pay my chiropractor bill um, and uh, we'll settle that in the semifinals. Awesome. All right, Caleb, can't wait to see it. Um, I never normally do final thoughts because I like to, uh, you know, not speak anymore. Uh, But I'm going to say that going into these semifinals now, we have uh, Caleb Bowman going up against Caleb Coho and Cameron Holtzman going up against Jacoby Bancroft. So those four people, one of those four people is who you're going to see at Mayhem against Cody. Uh, That's insane. This is already insane between Holtzman, the Caleb's, and Jacoby. This is shaping up to be an insane uh, mayhem at the multiplex. So uh, I'm super looking forward to it. Mark, let's get final thoughts from you. Uh, no, uh, 
feel like uh, this match was, uh, even though probably maybe a little less yelling we were expecting anything, it was still as advertised. It was very great, very entertaining. And uh, it's uh, we got a very interesting picture heading into our uh, aforementioned title match. Uh, Brian, what about you? Uh, I enjoyed uh, Coho's. It's the second most epic I have a dream speech ever. Um, <laughs> the... Uh... <laughs> Uh, I, I gotta say, I, I, going into the speed round, <laughs> going into the speed round, I thought it was gonna be, I was gonna feel really bad for Coho if he lost because while they were tied up two to two, Coho had eight total votes to Bill's four because of he had two clean sweeps. And so I was like, if he loses this, that's gonna be, it's, it's that's gonna be a tough one to swallow. But he ended up pulling it out in the end, and it's uh, gonna be fun to see him in the next round. Yeah. All right, I'm super looking forward to it. Uh, thank you to Bill and Caleb. Thank you to Brian and Mark for judging this one. We will see you guys with the semifinals very soon. I have been Tim. We'll see you guys next time. Bye. There we go. Thank you very much. Please come again. We have a lot more groceries.